ました。Well, it's tough following those two guys, those two GQ sharp-looking characters that presented before me. So, you know, my job is to bring us home before we have a Q&A, and I can summarize this by saying we want to take a broken piece and make a masterpiece. And that's really where, where we're headed with the future of therapy. So, you know, we, we talk about therapy. There's lots of different ways to approach it. You can talk about mechanisms. You can talk about uh, the data that's been presented. We could talk all night about, about that. There's been a ton of work done in the field already, and we've learned a lot from our failures. We don't have time to go into the drugs that haven't made it, but I can show you and tell you that we've learned from those mistakes, and we're honing in on the drugs that seem to be working. And really, we can target five different buckets. Insulin resistance, lipotoxic, oxidative stress, inflammation, immune cell activation, cell death, and fibrosis, and fibrogenesis. So really, what is the ideal target for treatment? Well, I think this sets it up relatively nicely. It shows a lot of the drugs that are in late-stage clinical development, and where do you see the majority of them being developed? In the first three buckets. Why is that? Because that's hitting further upstream. What we've learned is if you target therapies that are way downstream, they tend to block or activate very specific receptors that are often overcome by redundant pathways in the liver. You want to hit the liver higher upstream where you're hitting the main drivers of disease. And that tends to be around insulin resistance, modulating that to prevent free fatty acid flux from sick adipocytes. We want to target the oxidative stress, the lipotoxicity that's causing dysfunctional hepatocytes and mitochondria, and then also targeting inflammation and immune cell activation. What I have highlighted here are the drugs that are in phase three development, because for the sake of time, that's where I want to spend the bulk of my talk. Now, it would be inappropriate for me to not highlight at least a small sampling of all the drugs that are currently in development many of which you will hear about at this meeting in some form or fashion. I've divided them into the phase 2A drugs or early clinical development and then the phase 2B drugs or late stage phase 2 that are phase 3 enabling studies. A couple things about the separation here. Phase 2As were typically shorter duration, 12 to 16 weeks, looking at a non-invasive endpoint to get proof of concept some evidence of efficacy, but really the focus is on safety and tolerability. In phase 2b, we're taking the doses that were proven to show some sort of efficacy, and we're broadening that aperture a little bit. We're studying them for a longer period of time, typically uh, 36, 48, 72 weeks duration, with a liver biopsy to get in and a liver biopsy to get out, enriched with a plethora of non-invasive tests. I want to highlight this year, when looking at the phase 2B trials, there are several that we anticipate reading out. Starting from the top down, icosabutate should be reading out towards the end of this year, the first part of Q1, and that's with a structurally engineered fatty acid, which we think also is working pleiotrophically. Further down, efruxafermin is an FGF21 analog or, or agonist. That is a hormone 
that is also pleiotrophic in its effects. It has balanced potency against FGF beta clotho 1, 2, and 3, so it's working on peripheral adipocytes by improving insulin resistance. It's working in the liver on de novo lipogenesis and mitochondrial function. Further down, Poxel has a piaglitazone-like molecule that is modulating the mitochondrial pyruvate carrier, and that should be reading out later this year as well. All of these are relatively large phase 2b clinical trials. So the pipeline is enriched. Some of the drugs have already reported out and are looking to move on. Others are enrolling. A lot of these are still enrolling their phase 2 trials. So let's turn our attention to the drugs in phase 3 development. There are five of them. I believe you guys know these well. The first one is an FXR agonist of beta-cholic acid. First reported out, it's subpart H approvable endpoint in 2019, and it showed a treatment effect delta of 11% on fibrosis, non-significant for NASH resolution. The company then submitted a new drug application. It was reviewed by the FDA, and it was given a complete response letter. I think we never saw the letter, but personally, I believe it had to do with the therapeutic index not being good enough. In other words, the juice was not worth the squeeze, so to speak. So the treatment effect delta of 11% did not overcome the potential adverse effect profile of the drug. Having said that, they have not given up, and they're mining additional data sets and looking at the pathology, again, through some different techniques, and the idea is potentially refiling. And so we're anxious to see if that happens. Uh, there is, a, again, thyroid hormone receptor beta agonist, resmetarone with madrigal, has two phase threes. One is completed, and we'll report that in the late breaker on Saturday, looking at mainly safety and tolerability. And then the registrational trial will read out in Q4, looking at efficacy. As far as a GLP-1 receptor agonist, semaglutide is enrolling right now. It's phase uh, three trial, and is anticipated to complete that sometime in 2024, at least the subpart H approvable endpoint. The same thing with lanafibrinor, which is a PPAR alpha delta gamma agonist. And then finally, the SCD1 inhibitor from Galmed, which is called a RAMCOL, that drug is working on de novo lipogenesis. It is currently on hold at the time. So I'm going to dive into the mechanisms of these very briefly, one slide on each. I promise I won't go too deep into this. If you have questions, we can take them at the end. But basically, the mechanism of action of a beta-cholic acid is it functions as an FXR agonist, which is a nuclear receptor. It plays a central role in regulating glucose, lipid, and synthesis, as well as bile acids. And when we say it's an FXR agonist, it, it essentially works in a several different ways inside the liver. The main way it works is it inhibits the rate-limiting enzyme of converting cholesterol to bile acid. So you get an elevation in cholesterol or LDL cholesterol, and you get a lowering of bile acids. We know as you progress in fibrosis in NASH, bile acid levels rise. So we're decreasing bile acid synthesis. This drug works inside the liver to inhibit de novo lipogenesis via S are EBP1 inhibition, and it also works on free fatty acids and lipotoxicity. So again, working upstream a bit to hit multiple different pathways. When we think about thyroid hormone receptor betas, I mentioned this earlier in, in, in the presentation if you happen to be there. In the setting of liver disease, any liver disease, there's a sense that there is uh, 
a kind of a, a liver-related hypothyroidism in the sense that normally uh, the way that the thyroid becomes active is it's secreted T4 form by the thyroid and taken up by the liver and then converted to T3, that's the active metabolite. In the setting of NAFLD in particular, you don't convert T4 to T3 well. In fact, you get an elevation in reverse T3. So by activating the thyroid hormone receptor beta specifically, not alpha, but very specific to beta, what you can see is a pleiotrophic action in the liver as illustrated in the cartoon on the right. So there's work on mitophagy and mitochondrial biogenesis, improvement in uh, beta oxidation of fatty acids. When we think about semaglutide, this is a GLP-1 receptor agonist. If you look at the cartoon on the right, this also has pleiotrophic effects. It creates a sense of satiety in the brain. It reduces glucagon secretion in the liver. It slows gastric emptying in the gut, and it increases insulin secretion in the pancreas. And when we turn to NASH clinical trials, we focus on the phase 2B trial published in New England Journal by Phil Newsom and colleagues showing that it induced weight loss, it improved liver chemistry test, reduced liver fat content, and worked on NASH resolution. Did not show statistical significance on fibrosis benefit. However, there was a, a reduction in the progression of fibrosis. And then we look at lanafibrinor. This, I hate to use the word pan-PPAR. I like the fact that it's a PPAR alpha, delta, gamma agonist because there's more PPARs than that. But for the sake of this discussion and in liver disease, we've tended to focus on alpha, delta, and gamma. You guys know gamma. That's pioglitazone, rosiglitazone. Celadelpar is a pure PPAR delta agonist. And there's others that have looked at combinations of this. But lanafibrinor is the first that has kind of this trifold effect of alpha, delta, and gamma. And you see here alpha working to, uh, to reduce steatosis. Delta has multiple effects all on its own. One of these is on inflammation, but more recently it's become understood that it upregulates FGF21 signaling directly, so there's effects of that that are pleiotrophic. It also works on fibrosis. And in the phase 2B trial published in New England Journal just last year, we've seen positive impacts on steatosis, NASH resolution, and fibrosis benefit. So it has now moved on to phase three. Having said that, I think we all agree that combination therapy for this particular liver disease is the wave of the future. It doesn't mean we're not gonna get positive results with monotherapy. In fact, for many patients, that may be all that's required. However, for many, there probably will be a need to combine different mechanisms of action because this disease is heterogeneous. One size does not fit all but potentially combination therapy might get at the majority of patients. To me, ideally, the combination that I think we would all want to see is one that's oral, that's well-tolerated and safe, because remember, most patients taking this medicine don't really have side effects, at least those that they can complain about in the office. Okay, so to take this drug for a long time, we need to be well-tolerated. We need something that has synergistic effects. It improves both histopathology, but also the extrahepatic manifestations of the disease, and ultimately, it enhances long-term outcome benefit. So when we look at the pyramid on the right, we can see what I structure as things that we really wanna target in treating NASH patients. 
it's not just the liver disease. Yes, we want to make NASH go away. We want to make fibrosis go away, or at least prevent progression of the disease. We want to reduce the lipotoxic fat, but ideally we also want to have positive impacts on ASCVD risk. We want to reduce major adverse cardiac outcomes in addition to major adverse liver outcomes. To do that, we need to have some positive impacts on atherogenic lipid improvement, weight loss, and glycemic control. To me, that is the, the ideal combination. Now, when we look at a spectrum of disease in our clinic, we see many patients with F0 or 1 disease. But depending on what level of clinic you are, if you're a specialty clinic like the one the three of us live in, we see lots of F3 and F4 disease. So there's a spectrum. We ideally want to have something to offer everybody. So what is that ideal combination? Well, it might be different if you just have fat and a little inflammation and fibrosis than if you're walking into my clinic with well-compensated F4 disease. So the targets might be a bit different as well. If we have mild disease, maybe we want the majority or the backbone of our therapy to be structured around something that can improve the metabolic profiles, that can help reduce the drivers of fibrosis. And yes, we want to also have something with some antifibrotic benefit. Alternatively, if you're on the other end of the spectrum, we want to stop the speeding train from heading off the cliff because we don't know when we see a patient in clinic how quickly they're speeding towards the edge of the cliff. So the first thing is stop, halt, and then reverse. So maybe a drug that maybe has more targeted antifibrotic effect and then something that can help modulate metabolism. And then those in the middle may be equal benefits on both. So how did we get here? Where are we at? We have five drugs in phase three, a plethora of them in early phase 2A and many, many in phase 2B. Well, we got here because a while back, the FDA established a way for drugs that have impact that maybe we don't recognize for decades to get approved. And that's approval through a surrogate approach or a subpart H approach. And currently, the, what the FDA advocates for is two different potential pathways to get approval. One is resolution of steatohepatitis with no worsening of liver fibrosis or fibrosis improvement of at least one stage with no worsening of NASH. The difference between the FDA and the EMA is the EMA has a more stringent profile. They require both to occur for approval. Now, ultimately, that gets you conditional approval. You still have to go on and prove that your drug has an impact on how the patient feels, functions, or survives. We call that a clinical outcome. And so there's that part of the study that has to go on for four or five, six years following that until you reach a certain number of clinical events that separate placebo from drug. Now, Jorn mentioned this slide already, uh, well, the following slide, but I think this one sets it up nicely. So here we see that fibrosis actually is the main driver of an outcome. There are actually five studies similar to this. I'm just illustrating two here, but both show us that at F2 or greater disease is where we begin to see patients develop hazard ratios and mortality rate ratios that put them at greatest risk, and thus this is the population we're targeting for treatment. Now this is the slide that, that Jorn showed previously, looking at data that we generated from the Stellar 4 program, 
which is, again, one of those things I highlighted earlier, we learned from. So semtuzumab was a drug that had lots of promise. We studied it in earlier disease, and it was taken straight to a cirrhotic population. We put 800 people in this trial. It turns out the drug didn't work. But we are able to glean good information from that trial. So we combined the Stellar 4 trial with the semtuzumab trial done before that trial, and we had about 1,100 patients from which to analyze. And there were some patients that actually had improvement in fibrosis. The totality of the drug showed no benefit, but there were some patients that had a benefit. And in those patients, we saw a lower liver-related event. So if we improve fibrosis, this kind of adds to our theory that we can improve outcomes. Now, if that works, what about NASH? If we make NASH better, does that improve an outcome? Well, we don't have direct data to support that yet. What we have is that improving NASH improves fibrosis. And this is elegantly shown in this bariatric surgery cohort, where after five years of follow-up, 84% of patients had NASH resolution. Interestingly, 70% of them also had fibrosis improvement. Additional data to support this comes from the NASH CRN. On the graph on the left, you see on the vertical axis, fibrosis change in a mean, so minus 3 to positive 2. And on the horizontal axis, a change in the NAFLD activity score from minus 6 to plus 4. What you can see clearly is as you improve the NAFLD activity score, you go negative, you actually improve fibrosis stage. And the converse is true as well. If we make NAS worse, we actually worsen fibrosis stage. The graph on the right illustrates it in a slightly different way. The first biopsy shows NASH patients with different stages of fibrosis by different color codings. The graph or the, the bar on the right shows a follow-up liver biopsy in patients that no longer have NASH. They just have NAFL, or non-alcoholic fatty liver. And we see a greater proportion of people now have milder fibrosis. So knowing that, that's how you get drugs approved today. And the five drugs we have in phase three and the plethora of drugs in phase two, what do we need to think about? Maybe this is some conversation we can have together. Some thoughts I have is, Modifications to the traditional phase three design are needed. And in fact, what we learned in a press release in January was that Madrigal has made that first step forward in working with the FDA. So now there's parallel phase threes, a phase three starting up in well-compensated cirrhotic patients that really goes after the outcome analysis. And the registrational trial that I'm already mentioned earlier that's going to read out in Q4. What's the benefit of that? Well, instead of enrolling 2,000 patients in a, in a one phase three trial, reporting out the registrational data a year or 18 months later, and now you have to follow these F2 and F3 patients until they have an outcome, which could take a long, long time, now you can design a trial, a second trial, where you can take a well-compensated F4 population that's likely to have an outcome much sooner and you can get your answer there, and that can help inform the other phase three trial that you have. So there's lots of benefits to doing those in parallel rather than one long spread out trial. So we want to encourage more non-invasive assessment strategy in all phases of development. 
And I can't stress this enough. We need to grow our collective database of non-invasive tools that will work to support a narrative change with regulatory agencies to move away from biopsy as an endpoint. We all agree biopsy is not the ideal situation to look at an, uh, an outcome or a measure of improvement in the setting of NASH. We've seen data, we've all generated, every one of us on the stage have shown data that that's not an ideal way to go. It doesn't mean we get rid of liver biopsy, by the way. There's certainly a need for it, particularly when we don't understand what's causing the liver disease, or maybe there's more than one liver disease in the same patient. But for the purposes of clinical trials, we need to move away from liver biopsy. How do we get there? We need to link an NIT to an outcome. And how do we do that? We do that by combining data and looking at it collectively. We can't combine data if you don't generate the data, so we need our sponsors to generate non-invasive testing data as part of their early phase clinical development as well as their phase three. And we need this to help develop all three contexts of use, not just an outcome data. We need it to develop markers for therapeutic efficacy as well, so that when we place a patient on a drug, we can determine relatively quickly if they're going to respond to the drug. And if they are, great. If they're not, we can add or switch therapy as other therapies become available. In the meantime, AI digital pathology, I think, will be incorporated more and more as an assist to standard histopathology. Again, no knock on pathologists, but essentially what AI digital pathology does is it provides glasses to see things that would otherwise not be uh, observable to the naked eye. We talked a little bit about that in the presentation I gave earlier today, looking at liver volume reduction and steatosis reduction and using AI digital pathology to help show where there are additional changes being found and correcting for the volume loss and the steatosis loss that we're seeing as we treat these patients. Combination therapy. We need a more thoughtful strategy involving initial response to monotherapy on histology as well as extrahepatic benefits. We don't need to be myopic in our approach and we also don't need to take two drugs that don't work and put them together and hope that magic happens. We need to be thoughtful about how we approach this. And then finally, genetic influences. You'll hear all day long at this meeting, in every liver meeting, the influence and the power of genetics on this liver disease, the omics that are being done to assess this. And I see this playing a larger and larger role as we learn about response patterns to therapies based on baseline genetic background information. What we know most about is PNPLA3 and the loss of function allele HSD17 beta 13. And then, so in conclusion, hepatic steatosis, lipotoxicity, inflammation, injury, all represent drivers of NASH that lead to fibrosis development. There are multiple agents currently in different stages of disease, over 40 in phase two, I've listed those, five in phase three, so that there really is hope that we're on the verge of our first treatment for NASH. A true rationale with combination treatment in the future makes complete sense, and we need to be thoughtful and mindful and begin to think about what those right pairings are and begin to show early studies uh, linking different mechanisms. The FDA and EMA still rely on biopsy and histopathology changes for conditional approval. There's rationale behind it. I illustrated that for you, but we need to think beyond the biopsy. We need incorporation of more NITs, 
better utilization of AI digital pathology, and perhaps baseline assessment of genetic influences are just a couple of examples of the future of NASH drug development. So I'll end there and turn it back over to our chair.